scripture tonight, 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Now follow the example of the correct teaching I gave you, and let the faith and love of Christ Jesus be your model. You have been trusted with a wonderful treasure. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. This is the word of the Lord. Brian and Tom have been friends for years. They've been on mission trips together. They've coached their kids' soccer teams together. When Brian's first wife died, Tom was there. When Tom lost his job during the recession, Brian was there. They haven't really disagreed much over the years. Uh, They would count their friendship as one of life's greatest gifts to them. But recently, Brian and Tom have experienced a severe strain in their relationship. The two men have been studying the Bible together in the same small group for years. And last year, they began to study the book of Genesis. They weren't very far into Genesis chapter 1 when conflict began to occur. Tom believes that God created the earth in six 24-hour days. And based on the genealogies of Genesis, he believes that the earth is about 6,000 years old. Brian believes that God is the creator of all, but that he used an evolutionary process to create life on earth over billions of years. Tom and Brian love God's word. They try to live under its authority. Each morning, Tom and Brian wake up and spend time in the word of God and prayer. But they disagree on how to interpret the first chapters of Genesis. Tom reads the opening chapter of Genesis as a straightforward account of events that actually happened. Brian reads the opening chapter of Genesis as a remarkably powerful theological account of God's supreme power over all creatures and the special role humanity plays as stewards of all creation. He doesn't think the original author's goal was to describe creation scientifically. The stakes are high for both men because... They believe the implications of their uh, interpretations are serious. Tom told his wife after a Bible study one night, if Brian won't read Genesis 1 literally, then how can he trust the rest of the Bible? I don't care what the scientists say. They've been wrong before. The Bible is clear, and I trust it. Brian told his wife after Bible study one night, Tom's view on this really bothers me. He told his son that he could either believe in evolution or believe in the Bible, but not both. The boy is majoring in evolutionary biology, for goodness sake. We've got to stop making people choose between science and faith. Can Tom and Brian talk about creation, and evolution in a way that deepens their friendship? Can they disagree in a way that strengthens their faith? Can they turn this potentially divisive situation 
into an opportunity to show the world a better way of handling conflict. Well, it's not easy, but our hope and our prayer and our belief is that that they can. Tonight we're beginning a a three-week series on disagreeing well. Uh, Each week I'll share a different biblical principle that will help us talk about difficult, important questions in ways that build stronger relationship, deepen our faith, and offer an alternative to the world's way of handling conflict. And uh, we'll begin tonight. Next week we'll be on, Sandy and I'll be on vacation. Paige Severance uh, has been working on uh, a very powerful sermon for next week on how Jesus responds to moral failure. And we've been going over it quite a bit this summer, and we were in my office uh, this week, and she was kind of sharing it with me, and both of us were like, wow, this is, this is uh, really powerful stuff. So be in prayer for her and, uh, and uh, us next week. Then the next two weeks, Lord willing, I'll continue the series. And uh, if you happen to miss one of these three, please listen uh, online. It's very foundational for us. Well, if Tom and Brian are like many Christians, they will eventually wonder if they belong in the same church. And Tom may think, you know, I wonder here if the leadership thinks like Brian does. If they do, I'm not sure I can stay in this church. And Brian may think, you know, I wonder if the leadership here thinks like Tom does. If they do, I'm not sure I can stay in this church. And that is a fair and difficult question that believers make over and over again, our answer. And and I think it it, it relates to the first question or the first principle about disagreeing well. Every church has a core of beliefs its members share in common. And we've used an illustration um, of a tetherball pole, and I just hinted to Scott that I might want to illustrate this, and before I knew it, uh, a tetherball pole was, was appeared on the stage. So this is a, there's several children at a playground weeping, but we will have this back uh, by the end of the night. But we, we've, you know, used that illustration uh, over and over again, and we've said that the, the core doctrine of the church is like the pole, the ball is, uh, the arc of the ball is like applying the scripture to all the challenging questions of life around us. But in order to play tetherball, you need to have a pole. Now, one of the questions, if we could kind of rephrase the metaphor a little differently, uh, every church needs to have a pole. Every church needs to have uh, a center circle where the, the mere Christianity of the faith resides, uh, those essential beliefs that they've agreed they'll share in common. And one of the questions that Tom and Brian have to answer before they can answer anything else is, what's in my circle? Uh, Tom needs to to ask himself, what are the core beliefs that I need to share in common for this church to be a place where I can flourish? And Brian has to ask the same thing. Uh, For example, they have to ask, is the way I understand creation in the circle? Uh, is, it, is it part of that, that center? Now, 
Uh, we need to just take a moment and, and, and address this reality. Some Christian thinkers no longer believe that doctrinal beliefs are important to the life of the church. In fact, these writers think that the emphasis on certain doctrines is what's wrong with the church, creating needless division and turning people away from the faith who have trouble believing hard things. And one best-selling Christian writer criticizes the notion of faith as believing the right things. And for this writer, he says faith is less about holding on to a certain set of beliefs and more about radical trust in God. And he says that the biblical idea of belief has nothing to do with affirming certain truth claims. Faith, he writes, is the way of the heart, not the way of the head. He says the virtual identification of faith with believing a set of statements is a serious impoverishment of the word faith. And he is sympathetic with a woman who tells him, I don't think beliefs matter nearly as much as having a spiritual path and following away. And this is a common uh, belief in the church today. A growing number of churches are embracing the idea that uh, maybe we don't need a poll. Uh, maybe we don't need a shared uh, belief at the core of the church. Uh, a church in 1998, for example, uh, launched in a Midwestern city with no doctrinal statement at all. And the elders explained this on their website. They said, we don't think that the best way to know what we believe is to read it on a page. We believe the best way to determine what someone or some group of people believe is to watch them. When we're handed a sheet of paper or click on a link with a list of statements, we believe that something vital is short-circuited. Well, they're right in a sense. Biblical belief is about a lot more than affirming certain doctrines about the triune God and how he saves the world. But it is certainly not less than that. To the contrary, the biblical writers and the church fathers were devoted to preserving and handing down mere Christianity, a summary of essential Christian beliefs that all Christians must affirm if they're truly to be considered Christian. And if we look at the passage again, um, let me just read it again. This is one of many passages we could look, like, look at. Paul says to Timothy, as Timothy is church planning in Ephesus, now follow the example of the correct teaching I gave you. And let the faith and love of Christ Jesus be your model. You've been trusted with a wonderful treasure. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. You've often heard me teach. Now I want you to tell these same things to followers who can be trusted to tell others. See, Paul has given Timothy correct teaching. He says it's a wonderful treasure. He says guard it carefully. Pass it on. I can't imagine Paul saying, you know, you know, Timothy, it really doesn't matter what they believe as long as they have radical trust. It just, I just don't care what they believe. He's not saying that at all. Belief was very, very important to Paul. He, he knows that you have to have a pole that never moves. Beliefs matter. Uh, one Bible scholar explains why. Um, if Christianity is compatible with any and every truth claim, it is meaningless. Christian thinkers and leaders have always recognized this and have sought to identify a core of essential Christian beliefs that all mature, capable Christians must affirm in order to be truly Christian. So, 
this is why we have said you have to have a pole. And for us, the Nicene Creed is the pole. That's what we put in the center. The Council of Nicaea was called to define the mere Christianity of the church, to guard it from distortions. The apostolic faith is summarized in the creed. It's what all Christians in all places at all times have always believed. Now, it's in no means, by no means, the only way to think about what to put in the circle. We are not saying that this is the right way to approach doctrine in the church. It's just the way we've chosen to do it. So, if, if you could put the next slide up, Bruce. This is kind of how, how we've uh, defined the pole. Uh, the creed is in the, in the center. And we spent 18 weeks, uh, as carefully as we could, trying to study the gospel. And that's what we did all winter and up until last week. Now, at other times during church history, many churches have added another ring uh, to the list of the ones that they deemed uh, central. And uh, during the Reformation... Some of these beliefs were added. Um, these were things that it was felt like you had to uh, hold on to. It was your position about baptism of adults, um, your position about whether or not you could pray to saints, how you understood the Eucharist, whether or not it was appropriate to have images of Jesus in the sanctuary, candles during communion, um, other beliefs like um, God elects some to salvation and some to hell, um, no picture of Jesus should be hung in the church. Those were very controversial issues during the Reformation, and those were added to the list of essentials that you, depending on what side you were on, uh, that you had to affirm to be a part of the church. Now, over the years, over the last century or two centuries, there's been uh, other things that Christians have said, no, um, these need to be a part of it too, uh, a belief in uh, that Christians shouldn't dance, uh, that Christians shouldn't serve in the military, uh, that Christians shouldn't be in the theater. Um, that one would have saved me a lot of money. But, um, uh, <laughs> we should adopt that one. Uh, drums and guitars in the church. Uh, for a long time, a big issue was whether or not you could celebrate Christmas. Um, the Puritans did not feel that you, you should celebrate Christmas. And then uh, women wearing makeup, jewelry, and pants. Um, to some of you younger ones, that may sound odd, but that's been, a, been an, an issue um, uh, over time. Now, the creed, as extensive a summary of the gospel that it is, uh, obviously doesn't cover many biblical subjects. It, it defines the pole, but not the arc of the ball. The creed establishes the what of the gospel. It does not establish the how of the gospel. And so Christians who agree on the creed often don't agree on very important questions of how the Bible applies to life. So the question is, can they live with theological diversity on very important questions? And Tom and Brian have an important decision that they need to make. They have to decide what's in their circle. Um, Tom has to be honest with himself. Brian's view of Scripture, he might say to himself, is deeply troubling to me. Does he not see the implications of where this goes? Can I flourish in a church where some people read the early chapters of Genesis like he does? Can, can I disagree in love with my brother, or am I compromising a core and essential belief for me? 
And Brian has to be honest with himself. He has to ask, he has to say, Tom's view of Scripture is deeply troubling to me. Does he not see the implications of where this goes? Can I flourish in a church where some people read Genesis like Tom does? Can I disagree and love with my brother Tom? Or am I compromising a core and essential belief? Now, many times Christians are criticized for breaking fellowship over these important issues. Um, but, but I understand why we do this. Uh, we are people of the book. We take God's word very seriously. God's word talks about a lot more than what's in the creed. And so it's understandable that Tom, after soul searching uh, and study of scripture, might choose to, to, to worship in a community that supports his reading of the scripture. I understand that. Tom and Brian have the right to say to each other, you know, brother, I love you, but this is a core Belief for me, you'll always be my friend, but this no longer makes sense for us to share life together in the same congregation. It's too important to me. And this is how God's people have normally handled important non-creedal disagreements. They have divided and formed churches with other believers who have expanded their circle to include the beliefs they cherish so deeply. But it's also true that this tendency to divide over important second-ring issues has resulted in the creation of 32,000 different denominations since the Reformation. Now, one of the hardest parts of being a pastor, there's many wonderful parts, mostly wonderful parts. Just being with you tonight is a wonderful thing. Being at the wedding last night was a wonderful thing. Even being at funerals with you is a wonderful thing. Um, but there, there's a couple of hard things. And the hardest part about being a pastor is when someone that you really love and have walked with uh, decides that they have to leave over doctrine. And uh, that just breaks my heart. Um, but I understand it. And so I made a list today. I, I, I thought of the different conversations I've had uh, since I first started to serve in church leadership when I was in seminary. Uh, that have broke a little piece of my heart away. And um, here's a couple of them. We're leaving because you believe in the charismatic gifts. We're leaving because you've allowed women to lead and teach men. We're leaving because you don't take a firm enough stand on abortion. I'm deeply troubled that you've not taken a stronger stand for Israel. It grieves me that you care for Israel so much, but not the needs of the Palestinians. I can't worship in a church that won't condemn homosexuality from the pulpit. I can't worship in a church that won't affirm homosexuality from the pulpit. We can't worship in a church that won't reject evolution. I'm not sure I can be in a church that won't support immigration reform. I was deeply disappointed that the church did not get behind mountaintop removal legislation. It's obvious that Christians should support health care reform. Why didn't you take a stand on it? I can't worship in a church that allows liturgical dance. It causes men to lust. You cited author X in a sermon. Author X once cited Author Z. Author Z is a known heretic. 
My pastor says, you are. <laughs> That's a real conversation. Um, can you tell me why you are not? The Bible is clearly against debt. If you take out a loan for this building program, I'm taking my family and leaving. Now, I actually have positions on all of those. Um, and when we cover them in Scripture, I try to let you know what I think and let you know what another side might be. But we've not chose to put them in the center ring. I know how I'm supposed to respond to these conversations. Um, uh, a lot of times I don't. I just had to realize this week that a lot of times I've, I've felt personally rejected and, and become uh, bitter. And that's wrong. And I confess that if you've ever felt that from me in a conversation, that's, that's wrong. I, if you ever find uh, when you relate with me over lunch or something that I'm a little hard to get to know and a little distant, uh, I think I'm realizing why. This is why, because there's a voice in my, my head that says, you'll, you'll be gone in five years too because something I say will hurt you or you'll disagree with it. But that's sinful for me to withhold my heart from you for these things. Uh, the right way to deal with this is to follow Paul's guidance in Romans 14. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And so the appropriate response that I, I try to give is, you know, I love you, I will miss you, I trust you that you're following God, and I bless you as you leave. But our hope at all souls is that even though this might happen, and you might choose to do this, uh, that there might be another way that God could be glorified by a people who disagree about very important things, and who learn how to listen to one another and learn from one another and disagree in a way that actually results in stronger relationships, deepens faith, and offers an alternative to the world's way of handling conflict. I wanted to look at those benefits tonight. We're kind of just doing an introduction tonight. But this idea that disagreeing well can deepen relationship. Is that even possible? I mean, doesn't disagreement always lead to division and hurt? Well, usually. But it doesn't have to. You know, one of the things that's been so encouraging me to me this spring is our shepherding team meetings. If you ever served on a board, you bump into each other. That's part of what boards do. We bumped into each other a lot. But man, everybody around that circle is so committed to loving and listening and working hard and getting together afterward to follow up. And I, I, feel, I feel like my love for those people is deepening as we've bumped into each other a little bit. Just very thankful to be a part of this team. Um, Ginger sent the shepherding team a real helpful essay, and uh, she got it from somebody. I think she got it from Ray, who got it from Mark's Monday Night class or something. I don't know, but it's called uh, "Conflicts Are Laboratories of Love." And uh, I don't know about you, but that's not my first reaction. <laughs> I think conflicts are laboratories for heartburn. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I used to think that peace was the absence of conflict. And you know what I'm learning uh, in our church is that it's not. Peace is pressing into tension and, and finding some intimacy in, in the midst of, of that. Well, here's a, a line from this wonderful article Ginger sent us. And, uh, she mentioned at the beginning of the meeting Tuesday, and I really thought it framed a real helpful, supportive way to talk about things. Conflict is the laboratory in which love grows. Conflict is one of the places where we learn that love bears all things. The Gospels portrayed every time we forbear with someone in love because we're not loving them in the way Christ loved us. God often leads us toward the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace through conflicts that require us to exercise a self-humbling, gracious love. That's just so good. That's just so good. And I hope we're not a church that has sort of a false peace. I hope we have the kind of peace that comes when we press into hard things. Um, I think that's what we're trying to do. The second real benefit of disagreeing well is, is it really can deepen faith. And I know that like in the Tom and Brian situation, both of them are wondering, you know, if I stay in a church that feels this way about uh, Genesis, will it harm my faith? Will it harm my kids' faith? Is this a place that I can raise my children in? And those are very fair questions. But what if staying and actually learning how to disagree well with someone you wouldn't normally hang out with is actually a better way to deepen faith? Um, Logan Mahan, uh, one of our members, is a gifted, gifted writer, encouraging to write a book. And uh, he put it like this on his blog. He says, In almost every other relational context... We get to choose who we associate with based on comfort and unnatural inclination. But church is so frustratingly, infuriatingly, and beautifully not like that. Church is the place where we come together joined by the gut-wrenching, soul-shifting, finished work of Christ. Only to look around and say, all these people were seduced by Jesus too, and now we all have to live together? I admit, I sometimes long to join people with the exact same beliefs, the exact same lifestyle, the exact same perspectives, and pretend that's church. And I feed that illusion by sidestepping the tenser issues in the name of peacekeeping. But peace isn't avoiding conflict, friends. Peace is sitting in the tension, inviting dialogue with the tension, and refusing to respond with either hostility or retreat. Romance, that's natural. Friendships of convenience, that's natural. Church is not natural. <laughs> it's supernatural and passionate and completely ridiculous. Church is going to disappoint me. Church is going to hurt my feelings. But church is where I'm going to stay. Because like it or not, church is where Jesus keeps happening. He insists on throwing all of his parties there and I can't seem to stay away. No, I, you know, I, I hear all the time, I just can't be in church anymore. It was just so hard on my faith, and I needed to go away. And, you know, okay, fine. Um, boy, being around you 
really helps my faith. <laughs> just, just trying to walk and love and stay present and not run away. To me, that's, that's where faith grows. I'm very thankful to have you to do that with. Well, the last little idea we have here is that disagreeing well offers an alternative that the world might see. Remember when we started this whole series, we looked at John 17, the Lord prays for unity, and he says, I want you to be one so that the world may know um, that you sent me. So when we disagree well about beliefs, uh, we, we model another way of handling conflict before a world that is breaking apart. After a recent sermon, uh, Lisa Murray, who's a faculty member over at UT and the collaborative communication at UT uh, Institute, she came up to Jill and she said, you know, the things that you guys are talking about are very related to the things that we talk about in the Institute. And um, the kind of disciplines you're trying to practice are the ones we're talking a lot about. So uh, our staff went over and spent an a wonderful hour with Lisa this past week. And, you know, I asked you a couple months ago to pray about what next steps might we take as a congregation about if we try to apply these principles of peacemaking and we weren't sure what that might look like. And and in our meeting Tuesday night, it became real clear that God had provided Lisa and some of her coworkers. And uh, so we thought, well, let's start with the board. Maybe that's what we need to do next. So, we're just going to have a couple little retreats and uh, figure out some topic that makes us all mad and then dive in. Um, you know, it should be a lot of fun. Um, so we're, we thought we'd practice on ourselves first. So maybe, maybe you're off the hook, but I doubt it. Um, so, so Lisa sent us an email that I was really encouraged by. She says uh, that after they met with us, they got together with their colleagues and the idea they started to talk about how religious institutions practice disagreement. And then she shared about what we're trying to do at All Souls. And she writes, One attendee shared that those divisive disagreements were in large part why he left the church. The other, a lapsed Catholic, was really intrigued that a church body might explore diversity on thought on important issues. And then Lisa, ever the eloquent writer, um, I love being in a space where we could envision what it might look like, how it would work, to image a place where personal convictions did not decimate the possibilities of fellowship with other believers who do not share those convictions. Enthusiastically, Lisa Murray. <laughs> So Tom and Brian have a decision to make before they can do the hard work of peacemaking. They, they have to decide what's in their circle. And all souls, we put the creed there. It's not the only way to do it. I'm learning it's definitely not the easiest way to do it. It's just the way we've decided to do it. The creed is our pole. St. Francis wrote a prayer that uh, seems especially suited to a church like ours. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. 
Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, it is in dying that we are born again to eternal life.